0: welcome to it's who you know the podcast bridging the gap between jewish leaders and those who follow them gain insight from jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your jewish world this is it's who you know the podcast with your host michelle w malkin and i'm very happy to be bringing our guest today is mark ervis executive vice president at the jewish federations of north america he's been in the role since 2013. And previous to that, he spent 12 years as the CEO of the Jewish Federations of Greater Vancouver. And one of the things that made me interested to bring Mark on was to be able to speak with somebody from JFNA about their work and about the work that they do with the various federations globally. So welcome to the program, Mark. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us. And I'd love to just start with uh, your own personal journey. I gave very short snippets of the places that you've worked, but you've clearly had a lot of successes in growing organizational resources and planning for future growth within these organizations. So I'd love to hear about your journey.
1: Sure. I started my professional career in Jewish federations in Cleveland, but I came to Cleveland having done a graduate program at Hebrew Union College in the West Coast campus together with a master's in social work at University of Southern California. So my position in Cleveland was my first job out of graduate school. I'd gone to graduate school on a scholarship from the federation system, so I was already committed at that point to working in the Jewish federation field, and Cleveland recruited me coming out of graduate school. Cleveland was a great community to start in, just a powerhouse of a federation, powerhouse of a Jewish community with a high focus and a long history of being a training ground for federation professionals, lots of folks who've gone on to lead other community federations or other significant institutions in Jewish life. So I was there for 17 years in a variety of roles, fundraising community relations, a big chunk of planning, and especially planning in Jewish education, did some work with some of the supporting foundations of the Federation, including the Mandel Foundation, which plays a significant role in Jewish life philanthropically. And from there, moved to Vancouver after 17 years in Cleveland. I was the CEO in uh, in Vancouver of the Federation for not quite a dozen years, and that was really the first executive opportunity at the community level to sort of help a community chart its path, raise resources, figure out how it could move the community agenda. My wife and I had actually been in Vancouver on our honeymoon. My wife is Canadian, and as we were leaving Vancouver, she was sort of mourning, oh, I'll never get back to Canada. And we said, well, maybe Vancouver someday would be an option. And then at the right time in, uh, in career, the job opened up, and we looked at it and said, we should try for that. So that was a big change moving across the continent, across the border. Our kids were nine, seven, and four at the time. So it was a big adventure, but it was also really far away from all of our family. I believe Um, it. Yeah. We had a great run in Vancouver, a lot of growth in the community, not just at Federation, but across the community. And then about four years ago, Jewish Federations of North America reached out to me as they were looking at creating the position that I'm now in. And three and a half years ago, I started here at JFNA as Executive Vice President
0: so this is a new role that they've created.
1: Right. I mean, they've had various iterations of senior management, so I wouldn't say there weren't mm-hmm. senior managers here before, but this particular iteration of an executive vice president with a combination of business operations management coupled with program management for the organization was new.
0: Great. Wonderful. So I'm curious what it was that attracted you to federations when you were a pre-graduate student applying for that scholarship program.
1: Sure. So, I grew up in an actively engaged and affiliated family. My parents had been very involved in synagogue life. They used to go door-to-door soliciting for the UJA campaign. We used to go to Soviet Jewry rallies and the Israel parades in New York City growing up on Long Island. So, I, I was sort of primed for involvement. I was involved in the Reform Youth Movement, Nifty. I was a regional president for Nifty on Long Island. And worked for five summers at one of their camps, the Eisner Camp Institute in Great Barrington. So during my years in university, I was really very primed to be involved on campus. In fact, mm-hmm. I looked for a campus where I knew there would be active Jewish student life. And they focused on uh, the State University of New York at Albany. So. I was involved on campus from day 1. I shared the UJA campaign, student campaign in my freshman year and was an officer in Hillel and then president of Hillel and Hillel in Albany derived almost all of its support from the local federation in albany uh that's still true today was one of those campuses where hillel international sort of didn't get to as it was building out its platform much earlier in its history so it really relied on the local community for support and the hillel directors who i had the really pleasure and privilege to work with were very talented professionals, supervised directly by the local federation director. And I got exposed to what a Jewish federation is. I got exposed to the professionals who work there. And that drew me in. By the time I was in my senior year. I was looking at careers in Jewish Federation. I did an internship at the Federation. They sent me to the annual General Assembly, which was in Detroit that year. And I ended up making the decision to go into the field and pursue a scholarship that would Help me, uh, you know, sort of be on that track.
0: That's great. So you're a shining example of how federations could do it right <laughs> to, to bring up new leadership, right?
1: Well, there are people find many pathways into our work today. Right, um, right. But yeah, I sort of came in the planned track, if you will.
0: Right. And you mentioned that Cleveland, I guess, is a place where a lot of professionals have kind of come up through other ranks and gone on to other positions, other places. What do you think it is about that community that is able to sort of foster that and help develop professionals differently than maybe other communities?
1: So I think a lot of people have wondered that about Cleveland over a (laughs) lot of years. So Cleveland, you know, I think some of it is actually just history of the city and history of the community. Cleveland as a city was really in its heyday at the turn of the previous century. You know, in the early 1900s, it was a big steel town, industrial city, and the infrastructure of community life, both in the Jewish community and beyond the Jewish community, built there in that context. So it was a very philanthropic city, and the Jewish community... Evolved that way within it. The United Way system started very early there and the Jewish Federation system and United Ways grew up alongside one another as parallel developments and often with crossover leadership. That was certainly the case in Cleveland. So I think it's just one of those places where there was very strong multi-generational leadership families who valued the role of communal professionals and invested in them mm-hmm. and were successful enough to be raising Serious resources that allowed the community to do lots of things. I always like to say Cleveland is a uh, socially conservative place that does very innovative things. You know, it's sort of conservative in the way that rooted Midwestern communities are conservative, not necessarily politically, but just, you know, in terms of general social norms, Mm -hmm. but because of the resources they're able to attract and contribute. They're able to experiment and do very significant things.
0: That's a wonderful insight to have. So let's talk a little bit more about what your role is. Uh, You mentioned a little bit of operations, a little bit of programming. So what's it like to be the executive vice president of JFNA?
1: It's never boring. (laughs) And uh, you know every day brings a wonderful mix of things. So on the operations side, we're a complex organization. We relate to 148 local federations and about 150 active smaller communities that also raise money that they contribute through our North American system, but don't have very much local infrastructure. It's called the Network of Independent Jewish Communities. So it's a wide base of constituencies, and our role is to serve, represent, and lead the local federations as they fulfill their mission, you know, rooted in Jewish values of chesed, caring for one another, chinuch definely broad education, but very broadly defined in terms of connecting people with Jewish life and tradition and Klaus Israel focusing on the unity of the Jewish people and their relationship with Israel and world Jewry. So, you know, that's sort of the broad mission of federations. JFNA's role is to serve, represent, and lead that system that network and movement. As executive vice president, I'm in place to support the CEO, you know, in his role and he has a more external outward-facing role in relating to donors and relating to communities and other partner organizations with whom we work. I carry some of that external role but a very significant internal management role in supervising a range of operating departments across the organization and program departments. So, all the fun business things like finance and IT and HR fall under my basket, but so does our work in planning and Jewish educational planning and leadership development, professional and lay, and the advocacy work we do out of our Washington office and a few other miscellaneous things. Mm-hmm. I'm our point person at times of crisis for internal coordination, and God bless the Jewish world. It's been quiet the last year, thank God. You know, wars in Israel, horrific uh, terror attacks in France at those times when we need to go into hyperdrive and mobilize our system, um, our internal point person for coordinating how we do that.
0: That's great. So when you started, and to the extent that you can share, when you first came into the role, what was... Communicated to you, or what did you observe as some of the biggest challenges or sort of successes that you were walking into when you first started the role? So,
1: JFNA was just completing a strategic review driven by its board leadership and senior management. And on the operating side, creating my job was one of the recommendations to alleviate pressure on the CEO and create more top management strength to actually drive that set of initiatives that came out of that strategic review. So a piece of it was actually about looking at the various things that we wanted to accomplish both operationally and programmatically and support driving those through the organization, building greater cross-departmental work, de-siloing the organization as, as much as possible. So that's a big piece of it. You know, it's now three and a half years later, four and a half years since that strategic review finished some of those thrusts are still quite active and we're still moving on. Some have evolved either because things were not realistic or possible or because uh, the agenda has evolved. But, you know, 148 constituencies, about 185 employees, three offices in New York, Washington, and Israel, and maybe about 15 other employees who work remotely scattered around North America. Just managing the day-to-day process through which we keep things organized and keep things moving mm-hmm. is a Big chunk of it.
0: Definitely. I mean, as you just mentioned, you feel like after three and a half years you've gotten your yourself around these issues a little bit more and been able to help organize them the way that they were hoping you would.
1: <laughs> well, I would say that it's a constant work in progress. You know, as much as we would love to be able to stay just sort of in a very linear way at the start of a year say okay here's the work plan and we're just going to chunk it and check on it monthly and you know things are just going to proceed life doesn't happen that way we're very much affected by the daily weekly monthly news cycle okay. and events that are you know outside our control but very much affect North American Jewish life, whether that's events in Israel or events in our own society. So that wreaks havoc with whatever you think you've Absolutely. Been. So I think that's a big piece of it. And I would say also, you know, our environment is changing rapidly and in very dramatic ways. And we're constantly thinking through how we navigate that, how we try and plan for a rapidly changing future.
0: Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> Can't say something like that in there.
1: So, you know, there's, there are the big uh, sociological changes within the Jewish community that are, of course, interconnected to broader sociological mm-hmm. trends. So that has to do with personal identity, how people understand and act on their identity, and based on that, how they choose to affiliate with others and connect with others and ultimately what behaviors they exhibit. And that can affect whether they are joining legacy institutions, participating in federation campaigns, joining JCCs, joining synagogues, etc. Certainly, giving is uh, happening increasingly in different, interesting ways, people's sense of connection with Jewish identity as it translates into peoplehood and connection with Israel. You know, that's a whole big set of issues that are affecting the full fabric of North American Jewish life. And, you know, we're, we're part of that and working on that all at the same time. The relationship with Israel continues to evolve and the state of the Israeli political system and how it pursues various issues, whether it's the peace process or whether it's pluralism issues or civil society issues within Israeli society and how the North American Jewish community perceives and relates and reacts to that is very much affecting us. Uh, And then I would say, you know, from outside the Jewish world, but very much playing out in the Jewish world, are uh, issues of polarization, political polarization. And, you know, this, I think, is really not unique to us in the United States. It's not unique to Israel. It's happening in every Western democracy. But ideological forces are being driven by people on the extremes, and it's getting tougher and tougher for centrist political figures and centrist institutions to occupy a middle ground that brings people together. And we've certainly seen that play out in the Jewish community in a very dramatic and robust way, not just the recent election, but I would say it went into hyperdrive around the Iran nuclear agreement. Uh, which was very polarizing in the Jewish world. So, you know, those forces are affecting us quite dramatically.
0: Right. And out of the things that you've mentioned, unfortunately, I haven't yet been able to have deeper conversations about that Israel relationship, but definitely exploring a lot of the evolution of the split between these boutique niche organizations that are emerging, and that of the legacy organizations that have served our community for so many years in an effective way and the changing relationship of that.
1: So people often talk about a dichotomy between you know sort of the new innovative organizations and the legacy institutions and certainly innovation is extremely important and you know it's how we stay fresh and all of those things most often what we're seeing amongst the successful innovative organizations is that their startup phase is highly dependent on startup funds from philanthropic actors foundations individual donors etc but when they're moving to scale across communities, they're highly dependent (laughs) on the legacy infrastructure of the organized Jewish community. So PJ Library, which wasn't on the landscape 15 years ago, you know, active in 100 plus North American Jewish communities in almost all of those communities. The federations are the primary funding partner. Moishe House in 70 cities across the world, most of them in North America really hit its growth cycle when federations stepped in and started mm-hmm. funding. Birthright right. Israel, you know, which has taken half a million young adults to Israel in the last fifteen plus years. Federations have been a partner from the beginning in the funding of that. You know, I think federations struggle with, you know, the ever expanding ways of how people are connecting and how we most meaningfully connect people, but the innovators are absolutely looking to the legacy frameworks for how they can actually accomplish what they want to accomplish.
0: Absolutely. And in my conversation with Sid Chores, he just started a new network for these boutique organizations. And he mentioned his work with Panim that there was no way he would have been able to have that kind of an organization without the infrastructure and the organized, you know, legacy organizations that exist, you know, supporting and moving that initiative forward, it just wouldn't have happened. So it's a a fantastic point that you make is they're very much intertwined, one needing the other. And then you have a lot of questions from there as to, well, then, as you mentioned, how do you sort of express that, right, to your donors, to your community, that it's not one or the other, that it is this intertwined system of involvement and growth? Quick question about your structure. Do individual Jewish federations pay a dues or a membership or something to JFNA?
1: They do. So about 60% of our budget comes from dues paid by local federations. So that's the core of our operation. And the other funds that come, a lot of it is just Based off of annual operations, if we're running a mission to Israel, it's the fees mm-hmm. that people are paying or you know, fees that people pay yeah. you know, et cetera, is another big chunk of it. And We get some grants. We do a little bit of fundraising on our own. So maybe somewhere around 15% of our budget comes from annual fundraising that we do.
0: So I've noticed that in these kind of structures, and, and obviously, as you alluded to, the the norm of membership type organizations where you're getting your funding in this way, you know, I've just observed that you have no control over, you know, your memberships. You have no real control over whether, you know, a local federation is doing really great or is not doing really great. Hired a really wonderful CEO, didn't hire a really wonderful CEO. You know, if their board is making good decisions or bad decisions. So I'm just curious to hear from your perspective how either JFNA sees this relationship or what kind of things they do to sort of work out this relationship or help support federations when that's you know 60% of your budget that you really don't have any control over whether they are successful or not
1: just a little bit of history so Jewish Federations of North America as it exists today is the result of a merger that took place about 18 years ago 1999 between United Jewish Appeal Council of Jewish Federations, and United Israel Appeal. So United Jewish Appeal was the national campaign structure that drove the big fundraising campaign that delivered the overseas case funds to the Jewish Agency for Israel and the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, the major overseas partners of the federation still to today. United Israel Appeal, much smaller organization, actually the holder of the tax letter from the IRS that allows us to move philanthropic dollars to Israel and for federations to deliver a tax receipt to their donors. So an important Mm -hmm. intermediary role that actually makes all of that kosher philanthropically. Council of Jewish Federations, which essentially was the association of the local federations providing services to the federations. And in that merger, there was a shift of power and control in the system from the national level to the local federation by Mm -hmm. design. And what power and clout lived nationally in the UJA structure really shifted to the local federations. And I think most people still don't have their arms wrapped around that shift and the implications of that, but it gets right to the issues that you raised about we live within a system in which the national organization, North American White Organization, you have to remember our Canadians,
0: Absolutely.
1: is owned by our local federations. Our board is comprised of a representative structure of people who sit there representing local federations. Our top lay leadership are all people who appropriately rise up the ranks from their local federations and have their primary attachment to their mm-hmm. local communities. And if you go back, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago in the UJA history, there was a, another constellation of national leadership driven by the top donors in the system who related nationally and made decisions nationally, not necessarily controlled by or directly tied to their local communities. Of course, they were also the major donors of their local federations, but their primary focus was this national structure focused on international needs. So all of that is now a hybrid structure in which, you know, we're a blend of a movement leader and a trade association. Right. You know, and there are people who are trying to scratch their heads and figure out is it one, is it the other, and we're a hybrid. We actually, you know, have both of those responsibilities and sets of functions that flow from that. So now to come back to your question about okay, what does that mean in terms of how we relate to our local Constituent members, we on the one hand need to come to them with the national view, perspective about needs, what we think works. You know, as one of my colleagues would say, we we need to have a point of view. And at the same time, we need to be extraordinarily respectful of the reality that every community is different, it has its Mm -hmm. own local history, culture, leadership style, patterns of behavior, needs. And so it's not one size fits all by any stretch of the imagination. And we range very dramatically in size from the New York UJA Federation of New York, our largest constituent member, you know, which has a staff much larger than, mm-hmm. than we have nationally, of course, and, you know, is a powerhouse of a community that relates to us in one kind of way. And we have very small shops that raise very small amounts of money, may only be staffed by a single part-time professional, so, and you know, which has a whole different set of needs mm-hmm. that the system for.
0: Looking at sort of your experience with other federations or even their own federations, for those that are very very successful, what is it that helps them to be so successful? And for those that really struggle or aren't really making it in their community, what is it that they're doing that isn't really working?
1: There's a bit of a chicken and egg dynamic to the analysis of this. So, you know, I mean, you can't go back to Cleveland, which I talked about, which has had long history, multi-generational leadership families who are rooted in the community, you know, and have provided sources of leadership, operating leadership and philanthropic leadership over many, many years that has engendered tremendous stability at the professional staff level, at least in terms of the top leadership. So there are a handful of communities that characterizes that have had CEOs in place for more than 20 years. That for anyone at that level to stay in place for that length of time provides stability. It can also provide stasis, you know, in a way that isn't always productive. Sometimes you need to. But that kind of longevity of senior leadership allows for deep and long stewardship of the top donors of the community in ways that is just in a whole different league than places that are churning leadership. If a community is turning over CEO leadership more quickly, that's going to be both cause and effect of challenges that that community is facing. Because what goes in that dynamic is the ability for that lead professional to be engaged in deep and long nurturing and stewardship of the relationships with the key donors who make things possible in the community. So, you know, there sort of goes hand in hand. So I think that's certainly one significant driver. Demographics is a huge driver. I can contrast the two communities that I was in, Cleveland and Vancouver, before coming to the national level. So Cleveland, Midwestern community, very rooted neighborhoods. At the time when Jews were moving to the Cleveland metropolitan area, they all moved to the east side of the city. And then as they moved to suburbia, they all moved in one direction. East. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you you look back 80 years later and Jews still live for the most part in five or six contiguous suburban communities uh, where most of them are within a 20-minute drive of one another. That allows for certain forces of cohesion in community life for institutions like a JCC to play a bigger role as the neighborhood of the community, if you will, even if you know, individual neighborhoods aren't uniformly Jewish as maybe certain in-city neighborhoods were mm-hmm. you know a hundred years ago. You go to a place like Vancouver, where most of the population that lives there has moved there within the last twenty years. There was a small, tight Jewish community that numbered maybe about eight thousand Jews. Up until the time when Vancouver hosted the World Expo, and then the world discovered this little jewel in the Pacific Northwest and started piling in, and Hong Kong transferred back to the Chinese, and a whole lot of Chinese money Mm -hmm. moved in, and Chinese population moved in, and there was this burst of growth, and the Jewish community grew alongside the whole overall population of the city but in ever-widening concentric circles from the geographic core of the Vancouver city. So the Jewish Community Center in Vancouver is still sitting in the geographic center of the Jewish community, but even only 20 years ago, most people would have lived within five miles of that center. I won't translate it into kilometers.
0: Right. <laughs> um,
1: it's been three and a half years. I don't do the math as quickly anymore. And now that circle for that geographic center might extend out 60 miles. So places like Vancouver or places like Atlanta, you know, that represent urban sprawl, where the Jewish community has followed the general patterns of just outward migration, people live... In not such concentrated ways, there's no neighborhood in the Vancouver, no census tract in Vancouver that has more than 4% Jewish population. So Jewish neighborhood is a reinforcer. So all of that can have a tremendous impact on central organizations that are about building community like federations, like Jewish community centers you know an individual synagogue can still be rooted in a place and attract its community but the communities that are supposed to serve the community as a whole just have a much bigger and tougher job connecting with everybody mm-hmm.
0: You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. This episode has been made possible through the partnership with Timeless Katuba. A few years back while I was planning my wedding, I didn't feel like there were a lot of options for the type of ketubah my husband and I could get. Timeless Katuba has opened the doors to a different and new way to invite your ketuba into your new home. You can take a look at their many styles at timelesskatuba.com. Before returning to my conversation with Mark Gervis, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode, Miriam Chilton, the Vice President of Youth at the Union for Reform Judaism. He discusses with me the field of youth work and the impact Jewish youth programs have on our children. Here's a clip from our upcoming conversation. In the most simple way, I think that the work that we're
1: doing with youth is really changing the world and trying to make the world a better place. There is a story that has been told
0: by Rabbi Solanter, who was the founder of the modern Musar movement, where he says that he originally felt that he wanted to change the world. And when he realized that he couldn't change the world, he decided that he was going to change his town. And when he couldn't change his town, he said he was going to change his
1: family. And when he couldn't, wasn't effective in making the change with his family, that he realized that He needed to make the change within himself. And that when he recognized that, he was able to impact his family, his town, and the world in which he lived.
0: Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Miriam Chilton in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Mark. And so let's talk a little more specific about the leadership and the professionals in these Jewish communities. And you talked a little bit about the value of leadership that understands the community, understands the donors, has these relationships. Anything else that these leaders <laughs> you know, are or aren't are doing that set them apart from one another?
1: I think a, uh, a significant underrated or under-recognized component is the role of planning. So As federations developed, their first job was uh, raising money and figuring out how to allocate it. But the allocations, since the federations, you go back through their history, were actually created by their agencies to run a unified campaign. In the early days, the money just went to the agencies that were part of the covenant that created the federations, the old community chest model, if you remember your monopoly board. (laughs) So, you know, you zoom ahead and communities start changing and the constellation of institutions and needs start changing. Communities start to need to know more about, well, where are people living today? What kinds Mm -hmm. of needs do they have? How is the population aging? data. Whatever. You know, in the 1920s, orphanages were important. Hospitals were important because Jewish doctors had nowhere they could practice. You know, you get into the 1960s and 70s, and those aren't realities that the North American Jewish community is dealing with anymore. So the federations evolved a role in community planning, doing research about Population research about needs and working with their partner agencies to evolve how the dollars raised in the campaign would de- be deployed against those kinds of needs. So, that planning role has ebbed and flowed in the Federation system. The recent recession was not kind to the planning ranks as federations had to retrench resources. They're not going to cut their fundraising staffs. Planning got squeezed. And as we move into a period of very dynamic change for the community, having people on your staff and involved in your uh, volunteer leadership structures who are really focusing in a deep way on what are our needs today? How can we best meet those needs? How do we match resources, whether it's annual campaign or the supporting foundations that are part of our structures or private foundations that we have relationships with or government sources, et cetera? How do we match resources against the needs as the picture of needs evolves? Federations have to have an animating vision for their community. And without that vision, the case for giving becomes quite diffused. And so I think that's also one of the differentiators. For federations, you know, between more successful, less successful, do they have a clear picture, and animating vision for what they're trying to accomplish for the community? And a big piece of that vision also is not just the local scene, but how do we relate to Israel and our responsibilities to global Jewish peoplehood?
0: That's fantastic. So. Thinking about vision, what do you see in the next 10, 15 years as I'm sure your work evolves, but just as the federation movement and these institutions that you work with evolve?
1: So earlier on, I talked about core Jewish values, Chesed Chinuch Klal Yisrael, that we believe animate what federations job is, mission is on behalf of its community, we actually think those are timeless. We don't think those go away. We think the ways in which federations may need to pursue them will have to inevitably adapt. And we think there are some timeless functions that federations have to fulfill around resource development, fundraising, around planning and vision, around Leadership, cultivation, and stewardship, and nurturing the relationships that knit a community together and make it possible to mobilize a community. So, we think those are timeless. But the way we do fundraising is certainly adapting already and will continue to adapt. You know, 20 years ago, it was all about the annual campaign and only about the annual campaign. Well, now it also has to be about planned giving and endowments, and it also has to be about supplemental or project based fundraising because there are some folks who won't gravitate to the annual campaign or that's not where they're going to express most of their philanthropy. They'll give some there, but they want their own stamp on things. And you've got to be able to show them the vision, see how that vision aligns with what they're passionate about and try to bring them back to that community agenda.
0: A lot of different things to be thinking about. So I'd love to hear what your advice would be for not just uh, federation employees, but definitely federation employees and you know, employees of these niche organizations that are working with their local federations or you know, younger professions that might think about going to work for federations or older professionals that might think about going to work for federations. What's your advice for our constituency? So first of all, I think...
1: Federations are somewhat countercultural, you know, in the way that we talk about legacy organizations as distinct from new innovators and creative organizations that are evolving. I think there's going to continue to be a role uh, for those legacy institutions and they have to figure out how to adapt. We've talked about that. So I think for professionals who are attracted to the potential of the power of that work, being able to represent the force in Jewish communal life that is global in nature is both countercultural <laughs> and in sync with uh, the fact that we're living in increasingly global times where people are globally connected. So, you know, I think it's both on the one hand, communities are more and more acting hyper-locally. It's all about like, how do we make our particular community strong? And in fact, I think for the emerging generation, helping them see the fact that, it's not only about what you're doing here in your community, but the fact that you're also tied to Jews in Israel and Jews in Russia and Jews in Argentina, you know, is actually a very powerful message in today's world. So I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of excitement about the potential for that. You know, I think the other, I think, a dynamic tension is around, especially for young professionals, is the unbelievable empowerment that comes from being, technologically proficient in the digital age, which younger professionals bring to the work, and at the same time understanding that our work is incredibly relationship-based. And if you're moving jobs every 18 months, you cannot possibly build the relationships that give you the power to actually Move things in a community, or you know, in a national structure, but more importantly, you know, since we're community based as a as a movement in the community, you just can't do it. So, you know, my career has been characterized by going deep. I, you know, I'm 57 years old and with my third employer since graduate school. That's a real anomaly in today's mm-hmm. world. Absolutely, uh, but you know, so part of that's how I'm wired. You know, it suited me to go deep and stay with organizations a long time. But I also found because I did that, I was able to leverage relationships in a way that was very much tied to what I was able to make happen.
0: Absolutely. I wonder if even there's, you know, a way of helping support younger professionals and being able to keep them at organizations for longer and not feel the need to out to move up or to give them the tools to deal with maybe conflict situations that they don't like, right? To be able to show the benefit of longevity in a position in, in the gig economy in an environment where people are moving around all the time.
1: Right. So that's very challenging, you know, quite honestly. A lot of that actually does relate to how do our volunteer leadership, our boards, recognize that dynamic in our work and recognize the importance and value of strong and progressive human resources policies that make it possible for people to stay in their jobs. Uh, Are we offering good benefits? Are we supportive of women professionals? We have a very high percentage of women professionals in our field. We have to make it possible for them for their careers to advance and not be adversely affected because of child. And child rearing be, you know, in and out of the workforce at different points in their careers. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of dynamics are critically important. We were among the organizations that participated in the leadership pipelines study process. I think there's about 100 Jewish organizations that participated in a study two years ago. We're about to undertake a follow-up study to see where we're tracking against two years ago. And one of the things we heard from our employees was questions and concerns about their opportunities for advancement. And so we've tried to become clearer for our employees and for people who have supervisory responsibility in our organization that we take that seriously and that our responsibility is to look at advancement opportunities for our people in multiple kinds of ways. So the first level of that is, how are you growing in the role that you have now? Are we making it possible for you to learn new skills and take on new responsibilities so that you know you have opportunities for growth even as you're in a position. Mm -hmm. And then it's, okay, what's the next possible position that you want to grow towards? And what are the skills, experiences, et cetera, that you need and that we can help you with that would enable you to advance within the organization. Uh, But we also have to be open to looking at what are your opportunities for advancement as a professional, whether that's with us or not with us. And if the right next step for you is with a local federation or another Jewish organization or beyond the Jewish communal world, how are we helping you grow as a professional towards that?
0: Mm -hmm. Those are all very good things to be thinking about for your employees. Um, And I wanted to circle back for a quick moment because you mentioned something I thought was very interesting. And I, I love the sort of conviction of understanding Federations that I think that you bring that is unique to maybe somebody who hasn't spent their career in federation coming into this position, mostly seeing that the value and the gem of these legacy organizations and not shying away from that. And I feel like there's a little bit of not jealousy, but I think that when uh, legacy organizations are looking at all the challenges that we talked about and they see these boutique organizations that, whether they helped them flourish or not, you know, are doing great or getting fundraising or expanding or engaging people to see that and say that's what we want or how do we get that or kind of having this covenant nature of that's what we should be and I think that shiny gem <laughs> is not necessarily right what you should be looking at it should be what's the value of what you do right what's the value of the federation system that is broader that isn't niched to one thing that is serving people in a different way and that these legacy organizations have a place and have a value and how do we highlight and grow that and not try to change that into these boutique organizations, but really create that as one community with equal value and not to put one over
1: the other. Right. So I don't think it's one over the other and I certainly wouldn't want to convey that The new, or you know, as you call them, boutique organizations aren't important. I think they are important. Some of our legacy organizations are organizations that are absolutely involved in reaching and engaging people and touching their lives at the individual level. Right? That's what synagogues do, and Mm -hmm. JCCs sort of straddle both. They touch, they engage people on the individual level. You know, whether it's the early childhood experience, or teen experience, or senior adults who are going to the center every day for their Lunch program. Those are critically important legacy roles. And there are new organizations that are also doing some of those things in very different ways. I think it's more understanding that there are the organizations that act at the individual level, you know, or the family unit level that are, you know, sort of the front facing service providing organizations, whether it's education or human services or culture or whatever that may be. And then there are the communities that operate at the meta level, you know, that are looking at the big picture of community life and thinking about what will catalyze greater involvement and engagement, how do we make sure resources are where they need to be so the greatest numbers of people are involved or touched, or undertaking, you know, defense responsibilities for the community around community relations or combating anti-Semitism or those kinds of things. You know, they're just differentiated roles in the life of the community. There are lots of professionals for whom that direct one-on-one contact with people who are being served is what animates what they want to do with their lives. And God mm-hmm. bless, we need lots of those people, right. very talented people to be doing their work. You know, And we need people to be thinking about the big picture work that is going to keep the fuel in the tank and to keep the car on the track, you know, so that the community is moving in a good direction.
0: And also having the institutions where it's not, you know, one thing where you can go for spiritual growth and education and mm-hmm. something for your kids, you know, and that it's not just one, you know, just advocacy work or just, books for your kids or just, you know, kind of these things that there is a role and a place for these more umbrella organizations that span your life or your many needs. So you're not constantly making new relationships with different places. Oh, I, I'm aging, so I need career things. I'm going to this organization or I have, you know, to, to right. see those things in one place where as you, your needs change, the same organization, the same community, the same relationships are able to help serve those needs as your needs change. There's a great value in that.
1: There is a great value in that. In today's marketplace or economy, it is tougher for those kinds of organizations to clearly deliver their value proposition. Mm -hmm. Think about department stores versus specialty stores, right? right? It's just Getting tougher. I mean, there are other things going on in the retail world that's making it tough for Macy's, but you know.
0: But you know, Walmart and Target they are your one-stop <laughs> shop for everything, right? They're doing great. <laughs> but, they're,
1: they're doing great, and you know, people are increasingly saying, "Great, I'll order online from them, yeah. or for whoever right. is going to give me the cheapest." You know, so how consumers are exercising their choices are going to have a huge impact on all the legacy institutions. And we're going to have to figure out how to adapt. You know, One of the big changes we're seeing in the Jewish Federation field is precisely around that whole question of the responsibility and role of federations in focusing on how people are going to engage in Jewish life. And uh, how federations need to be catalysts and conveners and resource providers for the range of institutions that people are going to connect with. You know, they're not always the same institutions as you know suburban neighborhood-based synagogues and JCCs. You know, of thirty or forty or fifty years ago were. So we see new models of neighborhood-based engagement cropping up you know, with some federations engaging professionals whose job it is just to sort of root themselves in a particular geographic part of a community and meet people and connect them with each other. And in that process, help them build community and ultimately connect that micro community back to the larger community. You know, there's examples of, of that kind of work happening in Los Angeles which has 99 different subcommunities mm-hmm. uh, but also Albany New York which is much smaller kind of place that model is starting to evolve that is sort of trying to tackle the problem of okay what do we do now that people don't necessarily want to walk into the department store anymore
0: Well, Mark, your your insights have been fantastic and I I so appreciate your time and giving us a little bit of insight thinking for JFNA. Any last thoughts on our conversation or anything that was mentioned that you'd like to bring back up or or share your, your thoughts on?
1: So since this is really geared towards a professional audience... I would just, you know, close with, I was just really lucky early in my life to learn that there were people who get to do this kind of work as a career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I discovered that because, frankly, really my involvement in Hillel and through that got exposed to the fact that there were people in the Hillel movement or at federations who had these kinds of jobs. And, you know, that just totally connected for me. And that's what's animated me for over 30 years now to continue doing the same kind of work. To me, the opportunity to work wed my avocation with my vocation has really, truly been a blessing that I think has kept me fresh and focused in my work. The world's getting a whole lot more complicated. The work is not easier. <laughs> it's getting right. tougher. But I think it's filled with meaning and purpose as much today as it was when I started. And so, you know, the world's getting tougher for lawyers and doctors and everybody in every sector of life.
0: Yeah,
1: It's just the world is hard today. But that doesn't mean we can't navigate and walk through that filled with meaning and purpose.
0: And I've said before on this program, you know, we all do this work or are involved in the Jewish community for a reason. And, you know, a lot of that reason is is that is purpose and the meaning and the community and the relationships and that that is something special. So thank you so much, Mark. I really, really appreciate your time on the program today.
1: Thanks. It's been a pleasure.
0: Mark is a wonderful example of Jewish communal professional pipeline done right cultivated at a young age and shown the impact a federation can have on a community, Mark chose to focus his graduate work within the Jewish Federation community. As part of that program, he was required to work for Jewish Federation after his graduate school program. What he didn't know was that that was going to lead him into a career with this wonderful organization. When you are able to be involved with an organization or a type of organization for as long as Mark has, you really gain a deep knowledge and sense of what this institution means to the professionals, to the volunteer leadership, and to the larger community. JFNA is lucky to have Mark and lucky to have somebody who has devoted their life to the model of Jewish federations. And while some might argue that this model, is no longer viable and is only going to decline over the years. I think with leadership like Marx, I think with leadership who is able to see these challenges from a historical and deep-rooted sense, is so well-equipped to face these challenges in the coming years. Mark has done wonderful things in the smaller communities he served. And now on the North American level, his work continues to impact thousands. And even if in 50, 60, 100 years, the model of Jewish federations is no longer relevant, the impact that the work of these institutions is doing and has done and is continuing to do has resonated with thousands of people in our communities and fostered thousands of Jewish professionals in this field. No other announcements for this episode. I look forward to my conversation with Miriam. And again, really want to thank our podcast partner, Timeless Ketuba, for all of their support. You can get more information on our website about previous episodes and the full bios of all of our guests. It's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. And this is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Have a really wonderful week. And thank you for listening.
1: Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at itswhoyouknowthepodcast.com or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast.